The Water Values Podcast is sponsored by the following market-leading companies and organizations by Woodard & Curran, high-quality consulting engineering, science, and operations services. By Interra, innovation and stewardship for a sustainable tomorrow. By Xylem, let's solve water. By the American Water Works Association, dedicated to the world's most important resource. By Black & Veatch, building a world of difference. By Can Do, providing actionable insights from utility wastewater data to improve environmental and public health. By Mentor APM, intelligent asset management software built for water. And by 374 Water, pioneering a new era in sustainability. This is session 213. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thank you for joining me. Hope everyone is having a great spring. We've got a terrific show for you today. We have Alan Tucker of the Metropolitan St. Louis Sewer District who will join us, and he provides his perspective on technology innovation in the water sector from the vantage point of an IT professional. So Alan's insights are top-notch, and you will learn a lot from his discussion. I, I know I did. Um, he's just got a very unique perspective on all this, and I think Alan's uh, insights are, are going to be very valuable to you as well. Well, we always begin with a hearty thank you to our sponsors, Woodard & Curran, Interra, Xylem, the American Waterworks Association, Black & Veatch, Can Do, Mentor APM, and 374 Water. That is one terrific collection of impactful companies that have decided to support water industry thought leadership and education, so thank you all. And I'd like for you, the listener, if you could please do me a favor. If you work for or with any of the sponsor firms, please thank your boss or your contact at that firm. And tell them that you appreciate their leadership in the industry through the sponsorship. You'd be surprised how far that little simple note of thanks will go. And as long as you're letting the sponsors know how you, much you appreciate their support of water industry education and thought leadership, why not leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, CastBox, or whatever other podcast directory you're accessing the podcast on. It would be greatly appreciated and, of course, helps others find out about the podcast. And while you're at it, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Well, before we get to the terrific interview with Alan, we're going to take uh, a Bluefield on Tap segment with Reese Tisdale. So take it away, guys. Reese, welcome to another Bluefield on Tap. How are you doing today? Good, Dave. I'm uh, living the dream, I guess, sitting here in the sitting here in the closet talking on a podcast. <laughs> aren't we all? Aren't we all? Um, so we're heading into full-on spring. Construction season starting. There's a lot going on. Uh, what's going on in the water sector that uh, that Bluefield's looking at this week, this month? Well, one of the things that has really caught our attention, and I'm not going to lie, it came across my desk this morning and speaking to one of the analysts, and that is Middlesex Water Company, uh, investor in utility, is uh, being sued in a class action lawsuit in New Jersey for PFAS contamination. Yeah. So, I mean, PFAS is... We've, we've kind of heard about it a lot. I mean, everyone's kind of been talking about the risks. So uh, what, what, why do you, do you think there's an issue that they target that the, the, the lawsuit was targeting an investor owned utility as contrasted with uh, a government owned utility 
any, any? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, that's one of the things we've looked at. We just put out some research on, you know, investor and utilities. They're a discrete group of companies. We look at about 18 leading firms uh, across the U.S. And really one of the things that is of note, I, you know, the way we look at it is where are these uh, utilities, where are they located? So in this case, Middlesex, they're in New Jersey, but New Jersey is one of seven states that have set uh, maximum contamination limits or MCLs. And so any water utility within those states are subject to these MCLs. And New Jersey has a high one. And But at the same time, Middlesex in the fall had sent out a notification to customers saying, hey, there's PFAS. Uh, we've tested PFAS in the water supply. Therefore, we recommend that you use bottled water, put filters on your, uh, on your, uh, faucets because there's an issue here and we're going to address that. And they've started addressing it at the same time. Middlesex is also suing 3M who is potentially a source of the contamination. But the reason, so that's sort of what we're looking at, but then broadly, more broadly speaking is a number of these IUs are in multiple States. And so the question is, are they at, are they exposed or at greater risk? One, because they just have larger geographies that they have to manage. Um, and secondly, I mean, and maybe this is what you're getting is they're publicly or privately held. And does the public look at them with a kind of a, an eye of, Hey, these are private companies managing our water sources. They should, you know, should we go after them or do we, um, you know, rather than going after a government agency, which is more of a, maybe more of a battle or a different kind of argument to be made in the public, in the public sphere. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because the, the water utilities, you know, they didn't put the PFAS in the, the water supply They're What they're getting sued for, right, is the damages from passing that water on. And that's why Middlesex and I'm, you know, certain other, the, the entities that are, that are the source of the PFAS, those are ultimately going to be the targets because the water utility is going to turn around and say, you know, sue them. Uh, any any thoughts on just the lawsuit itself? Have you had time to to dive into it? I haven't gotten into too much detail on it, other than you know they have said that there's PFAS in the water, and then the question, the lawsuit they're suing for things like doctor copays and other related health um, uh, issues that have stemmed from it that it could be pointed to it. I think that, you know, and I'm not, I'm not here for sound bites and want to say that P, that the private uh, utilities or investor owns are more responsible than others. I think you're exactly right. They're just, uh, they're just moving water from one place to another. And now their standards in place, someone's going to ultimately have to pay for this. And that's why I think we see things like $10 billion being allocated to the, uh, uh, Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act that just came out in the fall, which is a big chunk of change. But the spotlight is now on emerging contaminants as a whole. And therefore, every utility, not just investor-owns, are going to have to deal with this. And the question we don't have an answer to is, what are these investor-owns going to end up doing when it comes to with their M&A? Will it have any impact on M&A? Will they do due diligence on the system and say, hey, this already has PFAS in it? What are we going to do for this, or how are we going to pay for the for the remediation of it? Uh, you know, we've sized the market. Currently, we're at about six billion dollars. It's going to be spent just on treatment alone for PFAS over the next eight years, so through twenty thirty in the U.S. So, 
not a small market, but it seems to be really growing quickly. Yeah. And, you know, there was a recent article in the Wall Street Journal about um, uh, a municipality that and some property owners and some water customers there that had sued a private firm, not not the utility, but uh, one of the entities that was putting PFAS into the ground, essentially. And uh, I mean, it was at a fire training station. And so they tested all the foam there and and uh, over, you know, many decades and they actually, I mean, the the Wall Street Journal report said it was a 15, 15 or $16 million settlement. And so I'm almost thinking that some of these companies that are settling out early for these claims may be gaining a better deal than long term. Because once these PFOS costs you know, rise and standards are in place, it's going to be a real battle. I mean, it is seemingly everywhere. Everywhere you turn, not only is it in the news every day, but you're exactly right. The firefighting foam, so military bases are a big source. So that's that's really where we started looking at this three, four years ago at Bluefield, where, where are the military bases, where are the identified sites of contamination. And then now it's gone beyond that to the 3Ms of the world, the Kimors, the chemical manufacturers and companies, and they're being sort of called to the altar, so to speak. And then, yeah, exactly. I just don't know where it ultimately ends because it seems to be everywhere and how ultimately we're going to deal with it. It's going to be things like activated carbon, which are pretty easy. Utilities understand the technology, but then we're also seeing companies like Evoqua who are bringing out ion exchange resins, which is a newer, different technology. And then there's always reverse osmosis. Yeah. I mean, it, it it's going to be interesting, I think, because... Are, are we going to take a tag team approach where the water utilities have processes in place, but also the wastewater utilities and stormwater utilities have processes in place? Well, the wastewater is a whole nother matter. And I'm not sure if we've ever talked about is the biosolids. What we're seeing is um, that has a huge impact for some of these bio because utilities, particularly in, play, in the Midwest, I mean, you're in Indiana, a good example is are these wastewater utilities um, selling or you know, basically selling their biosolid waste for fertilizer usage. So there are companies that just take the biosolids for fertilizer use, but if it's got PFAS in it, that whole business model is potentially at risk if wastewater regulations come into place. And they're, they're nowhere near that now, but I don't see why they wouldn't be coming down the pipe over the next five, 10 years. Yeah. I mean, cause it, you're, you're right. It, the, the PFAS issue is so ubiquitous that I think, I mean, I've not studied it, but my my gut is that we're going to need multiple uh, multiple sources for treatment or multiple ways to get it out of the environment. The drinking water issue is not a problem. It's really that because it's activated carbon is something well understood, and actually a lot of water utilities already have that in place for treatment. It's the wastewater is a whole nother matter, but yeah, you're exactly right. Someone's going to have to pay for all of this, and we've talked about water rates, water bills, bond markets, state revolving funds, um, a one-time $10 billion investment through the IIJ ain't going to be enough, I'm afraid. Yeah, much. we're in agreement there. Uh, very good. Well, Reese, always great talking with you. Thanks for dropping this knowledge on us, and uh, we'll talk to you next time. Thanks so much. Absolutely, Dave. Talk soon. Yep, bye. As always, great information from Bluefield Research and Reese Tisdale uh, concerning PFAS and some of the issues surrounding PFAS uh, that have recently cropped up. Now it's on to our featured guest, Alan Tucker. So let's get that water flowing. Well, Alan, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. Great to have you on. How are you today? 
I'm fine, thanks, Dave. It's great to be here, and thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. I am really looking forward to our conversation. Uh, but before we get in on that, uh, in you know, going full bore, could you give us um, a little on your background, Alan, and how you got into the water space? Of course. It's kind of an interesting journey. I uh, studied English as an undergraduate a long time ago, and I uh, worked for a bit in a retail store, didn't like that, decided I wanted to uh, go to political science for graduate school, and ultimately I wanted to be a pundit. That was my dream. <laughs> <laughs> um, but as I was working my way through a PhD program, uh, found myself uh, pressured for additional money because I, I made the mistake of having children while I was in grad school. <laughs> and uh, I was offered a job. I was, I was partially through my, my dissertation, was offered a job at the Missouri Botanical Garden in IT. And this was back in the days when you needed no qualifications uh, to get into IT. So I took it and stayed for five years and never finished that PhD. And uh, it became a now a 30-year career. Um, I left the, you know, the garden after about five years for more money and worked for some private enterprises for a while and, and went through the normal things where you get laid off and then work as a contractor for a while. And, and then I picked up a short-term gig at the Metropolitan St. Louis sewer district in the IT department. Uh, that short-term contract kept getting extended, um, I got hired as an employee and I have been there for 17 years now. Awesome. So what, what role are you filling within the IT infrastructure at, uh, at uh, St. Louis? Currently I'm the IT program manager for engineering, which means that uh, I support all of the divisions of engineering. So that would be planning, design, construction, and environmental compliance. Um, I support those business processes uh, as they are modeled in in technology. So all of the applications that uh, all of those groups use fall under my umbrella. Got it. Now, I, I imagine uh, you, you're seeing a lot of technology and a lot of technology advances over your career. What's what's your from your from the from your perspective? Uh, can you tell us a little about uh uh, the advancements that water tech is having on utilities. Absolutely. Yes. It's very exciting to be honest um, with the advent of, of cloud technology and cloud native development uh, and the, the recent explosion in uh, machine learning capabilities. We're seeing a lot of vendors um, offering solutions, products that uh, promise to lift data out of these isolated data stores where it currently resides and combine it and, and analyze it in very interesting ways. So um, that, that concept tends to be a, a common theme in a lot of what we see on the water tech market these days. Um, we're either harvesting data from existing enterprise data stores or we're collecting additional data from sensor networks 
and all of it lands in a you know a, a big data repository where we can run uh, more complex analytics on it to to derive interesting knowledge and, and wisdom about how better to operate the utility. So uh, an example that I'm currently working on is um, we are we're working with a consultant to create a, essentially a digital twin of a portion of our collection system uh, to optimize the operation of that system and um you know with with the data that's in a digital twin uh, people w machines can run tens of thousands of simulations uh and make recommendations for uh decision support for human beings to do do different things than they may currently be doing uh to to reduce overflows which is the goal in this case so uh, the the opportunities are are great and the technology advances very very quickly and it's very exciting from from my perspective it seems like at least you, you hear out there you see a lot of a lot of folks out on on LinkedIn and and other forums talking about hey utilities need to adapt faster if the the technology is moving so quickly but utilities are a little slower what that it seems paradoxical can you describe that or explain that a little sure this is one of my favorite topics um the so technology is or technological advances are driven by the, the private sector, by entrepreneurs, by, uh, you know, people who are interested in, in spinning things up quickly and getting to market first. Um, and it, it, these, these uh, challenge incumbent technologies. And as a result, you know, they, they, they present certain challenges to organizations that are dependent upon incumbent technologies. Utilities aren't really any different or much different from other uh, large organizations that are the incumbents in any given industry. You know, the, the, once an organization becomes good at doing its core mission, uh, it, institutes processes and procedures and it essentially organizes itself to be good at that thing that it that it does uh, water utilities are organized to you know produce or transport water you know whether it's water supply wastewater storm water whatever it is and the very organization structure, culture, everything else that, that makes them good at that uh, makes it difficult for innovative ideas to, to penetrate. So I, I think it's unfair to, um, to expect that utilities will somehow be different than any other large uh, governmental agency, any large or organization. The fact that we're monopolies makes it even more difficult, but uh, the organizations are doing what they're designed to do. Uh, so the, the challenge is not the technology. You know, a, a colleague of mine says, we've solved water. 
<laughs> and I would add to that, uh, what we need to solve is the utilities. And um, there are, I, I think we need to have an open and frank conversation about the organizational complexities and the, and the, the context within which utilities operate that, that just all combine to make this really difficult to do. Can you talk about the organizational structure and the utilities that kind of maybe might, might I don't want to say be a roadblock, but might be putting up a little resistance to embracing technology? Sure. And uh, I'll, I'll preface this with... Uh, uh, this remark, the, these are my comments, my observations. They're, they're observations about the sector in general. Um, they may or may not apply in all cases to the utility where I work. So I'm not speaking on behalf of or, you know, of, of MSD or giving specific examples that I see there. Um, but I think there are, there are, many issues, um, starting with uh, the way the utilities are organized or typically organized by function. You know, engineering is a separate organizational unit from operations uh, and IT. And each has its own objectives, its own agenda. And oftentimes those conflict and and in many cases, we don't see a lot of uh, cross-departmental idea sharing or, or pollination or collaboration. Additionally, there are uh, procurement procedures that can make it difficult because of the length of time required uh, to do a pilot project, right? It, it, it may take 12 to 18 months to get funding for an idea, um, and during that period of time, that technology may have moved on to something else. So the, the, the pace at which we move, that we're designed to move, makes it hard uh, to innovate. Uh, additionally, it's very difficult for us to attract and uh, retain tech talent um, for a variety of issues. Um, you know, the the hiring processes tend to be cumbersome um, in many cases because they're governed by civil service procedures. Um, and the starting salaries tend to be less attractive to top candidates. So um, I, I, I don't know the solution to that, but it is an ongoing challenge. And we're facing retirement of you know, many of our most experienced and most valuable employees. So I think a combination of things um, just makes it makes people resistant to newness. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And that's human nature. Um, it, it seems to me that people get people get comfortable no matter whether you're in the water industry or not, people get comfortable in a way of doing things and it works for them. And so I, I, I think fostering a culture of innovation and change is, uh, is something that we, we can all 
every industry can benefit from, I is, would be my perspective on that. Um, well, I, I think you're right. I think though that, that we need to focus not on innovation and, and not on technology, but we, we need to focus on the benefits to people. You know, pe- people don't really care that much about technology. Um, you know, uh, you, you buy a new device, you buy the latest smartphone, people, very few people care how that works. They, you know, they don't want to know all that stuff behind it, but, but they're glad it's there. Um, and, and they want to be able to use it without learning a bunch of new complicated things. Other people are perfectly happy, you know, using a a flip phone or, or something that they're familiar with, uh, even though it may not be the most technologically advanced, it may meet their needs and it may be perfectly fine for them. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. So it's not technology for technology's sake. It needs to solve a problem. Absolutely. Yes. Technology for its own sake is a recipe for failure. Yeah. You know, it was interesting. You were you were talking about the different divisions within the utility and how sometimes they each have different agendas. They 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 you know get their own information and and it just seems that's that's kind of what we were talking about at the very outset of all this is that the the technology vendors are coming in and saying, look, we'll we'll help you break down those silos between the the various divisions in your utility, and and you can get a a you know a, a more panoramic view of the data and make better informed decisions. I mean, is that is that what you see the technologies trying to do? I think the technology promises that um, the and quite possibly that could be the end result. But the the technology itself isn't going to solve isn't going to break those divisions down, right? We can we can buy the the coolest uh, application on the market that that cuts all across the utility, but if we don't have buy-in from everyone who's expected to use it in some way, um, it's not going to be used. You know, people will not be convinced that it has any value. It's just some additional technology that the front office or the IT department has just pushed onto them uh, without consulting, uh, consulting them on what they actually need. Yeah. So uh, to, to, to elaborate on that just a little bit, I do see a lot of, um, a lot of solutions in the market that address very specific, uh, business problems, you know, in the water sector. Um, and they, they, they may approach them different ways, but, you know, a vendor with a solution approaches a utility and I think there's a, there can be an assumption that all utilities, A, uh, have that problem. Maybe we all do, but B, that it's a priority to solve that problem. And it may not be, there may be, there may be other much higher priorities that have nothing to do with technology, but with limited resources, uh, management has to make decisions. 
Yes. Yes. So what, what is going to drive the, the, uh, adoption of technology and moving utilities forward, uh, on their, their technological journey? Well, I personally think that there needs to be risk reduction. I, I think that it needs to be less risky for utilities to try out new things. And it, it's risky for a lot of reasons. Um, the cost is, is just part of it. But people's reputations are at stake. Um, nobody wants to be have their name attached to a, a pilot project that was just an abysmal failure. Um, uh, there's no single authoritative source of information about what's available technologically. That's even an extremely complicated landscape to, to figure out. Um, we have a lot of fragmented um, attempts to uh, provide forums and information sharing platforms and things within the water sector. But there are dozens, if not hundreds of those. Um, and I think for the, for the typical utility manager, operator, anyone, uh, it's, it's, it's not easy to find answers to questions like that questions that that go beyond what you're what you're comfortable dealing with uh you don't know who to ask you don't you don't know who to who to trust you don't know where to go so uh, i would like to see um more collaboration between and among utilities i would like to see better information sharing I would like to see more open data in this sector so that um, so that entrepreneurs and innovators and students and, and others can gain a better understanding of some of the challenges that utilities face. Um, I think that could lead to increased collaboration with uh tech startup centers, for example, the academic world. Um, you know, once you, once you combine and, and expose all of these things and, and kind of give people an opportunity to think about the, the issues, um, it's quite possible that all kinds of solutions may bubble out of that, that, that nobody's really even thought of yet. The we we don't we don't really teach people in the U.S. that water is cool, what the uh, cool <laughs> area to work in, or you know certainly wastewater it isn't. Um, so it, I I think it would be beneficial if there were some kind of a coordinated effort to educate people better about the importance of, of our work and give them opportunities um, to, to see what it's like, to see the challenges that we face without having to get a job at a utility, right? Maybe, maybe there would be data sets. Maybe there would be um, online 
you know, virtual spaces or uh, games that where you, you know, you create a, a simulated watershed and kids can get in there and, and tweak it and play with it and change variables and, and see what happens and begin to understand um, how complex it is and, and how difficult it is to manage. That's sort of the, the technical part. The, the organizational issues, um, you know, ideally a, a utility would have visionary leadership that, um, that has a clear and well-articulated vision of the utility of the future, whether that's 10 years out, five years out, 20 years out. Um, and that that vision includes digitization or modernization. I don't know that that's true in a lot of cases. Um, and I think people's, even people's conception of what, of what that really means or looks like is going to, is going to be very different in different places. I guess my, the, the crux of it is, I, I think I would like to see more openness, more sharing, more collaboration, more, uh, more openness and less, um, uh, less sense of ownership of a certain data set or an application or an area of business and, and uh, an admission that, other people may have ideas that are good, you know, to contribute to these things. Yeah. You know, um, as you were talking, I was, I was thinking that when you were describing the leader of the future, I'm thinking that's that you're, you're describing a leader that is proactive, that is, you know, articulating a vision for the future that includes digitization. Whereas I do feel that a lot of, the issues because for, for a lot of the reasons that you've identified already, we're in a more reactive, you know, that's, that's how a lot of utilities are solving problems. They're now not all utilities, right? There are some that are just at the cutting edge. Uh, but I think when you look at the industry as a whole, it, it does seem to be more reactive in terms of this is the immediate problem that's right in front of our face. How are we going to solve it? And I agree. I agree completely that um, reacting to particularly external pressures um, is something that utilities are are quite good at. You know, if there's a um, if if there's a water scarcity issue, then the utility actually may embrace innovation as a, as a means of dealing with that. Consent decrees are a very strong incentive for utilities to behave in certain ways, but they are reacting to the language of the decree. Um, compliance, regulatory issues, a pressure from ratepayers. There may even be political pressure in some utilities. Uh, I, I think those are are far more effective at, um, or they drive that reactive behavior. Um, and, and it's difficult to move from reactivity to proactivity, uh, particularly when you are really constrained for resources, which goes back to my earlier point, which is, I think we need to reduce the risk of trying new things. And part of the risk is the cost, 
um, so that it's easy or easier for utilities to just try stuff out. Yeah. Yeah. So let me ask you this, because a lot of us think, oh, innovation, it's, it's like a cliff, right? It, it goes, you go from zero to a hundred, uh, in, in an instant, uh, is that, is that really how, you know, innovation is working or is it more, uh, more of an incremental approach? What, what's your perspective on that? I think it's incremental. It's always, it's always going to be incremental unless you are starting from scratch, you know, building a, a new city somewhere from the ground up, um, and, and have an opportunity to use the latest and, and greatest available technologies, uh, you know, you're, you're dealing with what, with what was built in many cases, decades, centuries before you. And uh, I think the only way that you can make those improvements uh, is incrementally. Incremental improvements are fine and they're great at, at showing business value. I think there's a risk though in making those incremental innovative changes if they're happening without a coordinated vision of where the utility wants to end up. And one of the things that I've, that I've talked about with others is that, you know, an innovation, an incremental innovation is, is an attempt to optimize a small part of the business, right? It's, it's a, it's, you're finding an optimum for some subset of what the utility does. So you get an op, a a local optimum. Well, you start doing that multiple times across the utility and you arrive at these sort of multiple local optima. um, And those can converge on an, a true optimization of the entire environment. Uh, but that's not likely to happen without a lot of direction and governance. Okay. So let's, let's, let's pick up on that full optim or that optimization model. You just, uh, kind of talked about what, how, how do you, how does the utility get to full optimization? Oh, that's a that's a <laughs> tricky question. Um, I think you have to kind of define what that optimal state is. You know, uh, from one perspective, it's going to be uh, efficiency. It's going to be you know getting the most out of your capital investments. It's going to be it, it, to someone else though, it might be um, keeping keeping rates low or, or in, in, uh, making sure that there are zero violations uh, that may be considered optimal. So that's going to depend on who you ask. Um, but uh, uh, from my perspective as a technologist, um, I, I'm, most interested, I think, in in technological optimization, um, which may contribute to all of these other definitions of it. But the only way to arrive at that is to 
is to plan for it. You, each of these incremental steps needs to be a step along a roadmap that somebody already thought about and laid out that leads to that optimal state. And, and that's the part that I think is extremely difficult to do. And I think in the majority of cases, uh, utilities haven't done that. Yeah. And I remember what I was going to, going to get to. So let me ask a a question that kind of might be a step back, but when we're talking about incremental and, and how we view technology and the, and the advances, it, it seems to me that too often we, we have like an endpoint in mind and that's, that's the, the, the end ideal, you know, that's, that's quote this year's model. Um, if I can steal Elvis Costello's album, um, <sighs> but if, so it's, it's this year's model, but there's always going to be a next year's model. And it, you have to recognize that there is no, we don't, we don't know what the end game looks like. We just know what kind of the next step looks like. And I think that feeds into the incremental methodology or, or, or incremental approach you're, you're discussing is, I mean, is that what, what are your, do you have a, a perspective on that? Uh, sure. Yeah. The, so you're describing a, a complex dynamic landscape that, you know, if you if you change something over here, then the rest of the landscape kind of shifts to uh, to accommodate that. It's not that it, it, a person can't make a change without there being ripples and and changes elsewhere in the organization or in the industry. And um, of course, you can't really accurately describe the future. None of us can. Um, but this is why we go through strategic planning exercises, you know, to, um, to paint that picture as best as we can some number of years into the future. And that's why we, we come back to the table and revise those from time to time because that landscape keeps changing. Yeah. I, agree wholeheartedly. Um, well, Alan, you have been absolutely terrific. I've really appreciated your insights and especially coming from where you sit within the organization, uh, in the it sector. So I, I thank you so much for your time. I do want to see if you have a leave behind message and, uh, what, what would that leave behind message be? We're all in this together. So let's not throw stones at the utilities and, and blame them. Um, let's all find a way to collaborate and solve the problems that face us, water problems, you know, <laughs> together. Yeah, that's, that's a, it's a great message of, of again, togetherness, right? So, um, well, Alan, again, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, for those who want to find out more about you, more about, your work at the St. Louis Metropolitan Sewer District, where can they get that information? Sure, Dave. I'm on LinkedIn, uh, and I encourage people to connect with me there. And if you'd like to learn more about the Metropolitan St. Louis Sewer District, you can go to msdprojectclear.org. 
So Alan, again, thank you so much for coming on. Great speaking with you. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Dave, thanks for having me. You bet. All right. Bye, Alan. Bye. What a great interview by Alan. Uh, he, he did a, just a fantastic job sharing his insights and how we can all work together to cooperatively promote technology advancement in the water utility arena. Just really good insights from Alan. So thank you, Alan. Really appreciate your time and taking some, uh, some time to sit down with us and share those insights. Well, I'd love to know what you thought about the interview. Please check out the show notes page for this information and for the links on this episode. Just Google the Water Values Podcast and click the first link that comes up. That's our landing page on the Bluefield Research website. Again, the Water Values LLC and Bluefield Research are not affiliates. We just have a joint marketing arrangement. And as part of that, Bluefield Research is kind enough to give us a home on the web. And you can also tweet about the podcast using the hashtag water values and tweet at me using my handle at DTM1993. You can email me at david.mcgimsey at dentons.com and you can sign up for the newsletter at that Bluefield Research landing page or that landing page on the Bluefield Research site as well. Thank you again for tuning in and I hope you make it a great day. Plus, I want to give a huge, huge thank you to our sponsors. Again, sponsors of the Water Values Podcast for the 2022 calendar year include Woodard and Curran, Intera, Xylem, the American Waterworks Association, Black and Veatch, Can Do, Mentor APM, and 374 Water. This show would not be possible without those great companies and industry leaders. And again, thank you for your support and for listening. I can't tell you how good it feels to be part of the water industry with such caring and dedicated participants. And I feel privileged that I get to work with you and interact with you every day. So thank you. Finally, and in closing, Please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the water values podcast thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me well thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer i'm a lawyer licensed in indiana and colorado and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or with anyone else Additionally, nothing in this podcast should be considered a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer that finds water issues interesting and that believes greater public education is needed about water issues. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water.